0: Welcome back to Lead Singer Syndrome, a podcast where I, your host Shane Told, I talk to other lead singers about what it's like to be the front man or front woman of a band, and this guest needs no introduction, you know him, you love him, he has been requested for years now by so many of you, and it finally happened, Mr. Andy Bierzak also known as Andy Black from Black Veil Brides. He is here. He is intelligent. He is well-spoken. He's got this big, booming voice. It was really, really great to have him on the podcast, and he's so eloquent. So, yes, you'll probably learn some new words you can add to your vocabulary after listening to this episode, and I want to thank Andy so much for saying yes and agreeing to be on this podcast. Before we get into that, I want to let you know, I want to remind you, you can always get in touch with me, send me an email, syndrome at gmail.com, I read them all, I have been so busy lately with renovating a house, doing a bunch of studio work, perfecting my tofu scramble recipe, you know, very, very busy, but I've been reading them, I've been reading them, the feedback has been great, especially with the last two weeks, the Fat Mike of No Effects and Frank Turner mini series talking about the no effects Frank Turner split. It was awesome. I'm so glad everybody listened to that and let me know their thoughts on it. Super interesting stuff from two really prolific, really incredibly talented and smart people. And it was great to pick their brains. If you missed the last two weeks, I highly recommend after you're done with this one, you go back and you listen to those and then work your way backwards because we got like 220-something other episodes as well. And I feel like they're all pretty good. You'll get something out of each and every one of them, which is why I love podcasting, which is why I love the long format. It really is great. And maybe you don't always have time to listen to, you know, like an hour-long podcast because let's be honest, we got a lot of shit going on in our lives. If you want to know about new music, my friend Mike Howell, who is a new music expert, me and him are doing this new podcast every single Friday called This Is The New Shit, and we will break down the top five most anticipated albums coming out. Last week, the number one most anticipated was the new one from Point North. And John from Point North will be a guest on the podcast very soon. Stand Atlantic was the album of the week before that. But what I love about what Mike and I are doing is we're bringing you some of the stuff that not everyone's talking about. Some of the bands that maybe only have a couple thousand Spotify monthly listeners. We're bringing those records right to you so you know about them. So if you missed... The last couple weeks, new music coming out. Go back, listen to those. And of course, this Friday, we will have a brand new episode as well. And hopefully we can keep this going. I mean, you know, every week it's a bit of a grind, but I'm really enjoying it because you get to my age, I'm 39 now, sometimes you just get a little set in your ways. You know, you got your favorite records, you put them on all the time Because it's hard to know what to listen to. So I'm loving this personally. Just finding out about a whole bunch of new bands, new records that I need to check out. So it's right here. It's probably just below this on the feed. So feel free to listen to those as well. This is the new shit. Myself and Mike Howell. If you want to help out the show, check out the Lead Singer Syndrome All Access Club. For as little as $6 a month, that gets you a whole bunch of bonus episodes, merchandise, and you get to be a part of a great community. Shout out to my sinners all over the world. For more information on that, go to leadsingersyndrome.com slash allaccess. It really is what keeps this thing on every single week coming at you for free. The 400 or so very generous people that are a part of this club, I love you dearly. And yes, I want you to be that four hundred and first, four hundred and second person, whatever it is. So join. Check it out. Leadsinger syndrome.com slash all access. Anyway, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Andy Black of Black Veil Brides.
1: In the end,
0: Hi, how you doing? Hey, man, good. Sorry, I, uh, I'm a little late. I couldn't get it working. Skype, Skype's always a, a mess for me.
2: I uh, I have not used Skype since uh, six twenty seven 2017 according to this app. That's so. probably what was
0: going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's always, that's one of those apps, like you open it and you're like, oh man, this is much different than I remember.
2: <laughs> yeah, everything has changed since the last time with my podcast, we do generally use we used to use Google Hangouts and now we switch to Zoom, so I never use Skype for yeah. anything, and so I realized that the whole app is different, the layout's different, and yeah. Apologies, It's probably my fault.
0: No, oh, no, no, no. It's totally, totally fine. I uh, I won't tell people what your your username is, but I like it. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm not I'm not a, a Bengals fan, but uh, uh, we toured with some bands from Ohio in the past, and they were always like going around being like Hooter, and like you know, I always thought yeah. that was that was. Yeah. Uh, a great little slogan, and I was like, "Is that a Bengals thing?" They're like, yeah, man, but it's a rough go for the Bengals these days.
2: Well, I don't know that there's ever been a time that it wasn't a rough go. <laughs> uh, I've been,
0: I'm, uh, I'm 29 years
2: old, and they have not won a playoff game since I was like four weeks old, oh, uh, no. and so. Uh, yeah, so my uh, my life as a Cincinnati sports fan in general is is one of tragedy and sadness uh, for the, my entire life. The Reds have never been good or, or that good. Uh, the Bengals have never been good. Everything good happened in Cincinnati before I was born, and that's why I'm pretty sure that I was the curse of Cincinnati sports.
0: Uh, possibly, yes. The Big Red Machine is uh, a long, long time ago now. But even more
2: specifically, the Cincinnati Reds won the World Series several months before I was born and then have never even won a playoff series since then.
0: Right, nineteen ninety. That's right. It was nineteen ninety. Yes. Yeah, That's that's like yeah. that's like prime baseball card collection time for me. So, I uh, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you got Joey Votto. He's my Canadian brother there. So. He's the homie.
2: We love Votto. We love yeah. Votto. The only problem is that, you know, you're you're watching, like many like many players that we've had over the years in Cincinnati, we get to watch great players never have any uh, winning, like anything of any substance in their career, yeah. and then they just slowly get older, and uh, we get to watch them destroy their career in Cincinnati, like A.J. Green. Many, many examples of this over the years. Right.
0: Right. A.J. Green, yes. Yes. He was a great fantasy player for me for many years. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, now he's got
2: uh, just per- perpetual broken feet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I know you're a big sports fan are you excited about uh, all this coming back I feel like it's been like we had nothing for so long and now it's going to be an overload like I don't know how I'm going to watch it all
2: uh, you know I was I, It was maybe it was a day or two ago I was doing an interview and they were asking about my level of excitement for all this and I have to be honest with you I am more uh, I guess I'm not as hopeful about it as a lot of people oh, are yeah. and I'm a little concerned about the whole thing in general I feel like there doesn't seem to be any way that makes enough sense to uh, to like make sure the player's safety is there, to make sure that they're, they can be consistent in allowing this to occur. You look at the NBA, uh, Russell Westbrook yesterday tested yeah. positive. There's yeah. con- some concerns about Kawhi Leonard not showing up to the team. There's many players testing positive, and they haven't even started yet. Right. And then people are saying, well, now we're eight weeks away from the NFL preseason starting. It just seems like in a lot of cases we're kind of uh, just just deciding that it's done and it's time to do this. And I, I worry that we're going to get into enjoying these things and the games are going to come back and then it's all going to get shut down quickly anyway, which is a particular bummer for me, also to go back to my sports misery in that we did not have an NBA team uh, growing up in Cincinnati. And my dad is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So from oh. the time I was a little kid, I've been a huge Milwaukee Bucks fan and right. they have been terrible my whole life. And now suddenly in the last two years, Giannis is great. They're yes. great. They're the expected to go to the finals in the East this year. Yep. Then the whole season gets shut down. And now even if they do go to the finals, it's an asterisk finals. Yeah. Who knows? You know. So it's it's uh it's uh. a little bit it's a little bit crazy. I would like to see baseball come back. I'd like to see these things happen. But I just I don't know. I guess the real answer is I don't know.
0: Well, yeah. Last year was kind of the Milwaukee Bucks. Like that was when they were supposed to do it. And my Raptors, uh, luckily for me, got the W on the season, which was really awesome. But it's true. This. This will never count. None of these sports will count in the grand scheme. I think, um, which is, will be unfortunate for some team.
2: Which is when the Reds will definitely go to the World Series and the Bucks <laughs> will go to the NBA Finals this season.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, I think the NHL is probably doing the best job. I mean, they were smart to put the two hub cities in Canada, uh, where we have, you know, far far fewer cases per capita. So hopefully, the NHL yes, is, where you have is doing healthcare. it right. But we have that too. Yes, we do. We do. Yes. It's not bad. It's not bad. Well, uh, we could talk about sports all day, but I do want to you know, pick your brain about everything going on in the world and music and Black Veil Brides and your solo stuff. I want to try to get to it all. But first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Talk to me first about the latest and greatest thing with Black Veil Brides, which is your live stream on August 1st, where you're performing your first record in its entirety this is a big undertaking. I feel like I feel like this is a lot at one time.
2: Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I've 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 known about the show for years, and I'm I'm happy to to be here to talk to you. Um, yeah. Man. As far as the the live stream situation goes, I feel like, and I was talking to to somebody about this yesterday. Um, the the reality of what this is now versus a few months ago. It seems to be like things are trending more towards this being uh, kind of an accepted reality that this is the way that live music has to happen right now. Yeah, And so um, pretty early on in the process, because we were meant to be, you know, the band has been kind of inactive for a number of years. We were going right. through a lot of different stuff. We had a, a member change and there's this reinvigorated nature to the band. And we we're really excited to get back out there. And then we were going to do, a year of touring to kind of set this up and and uh, celebrate the 10 year anniversary of this record and we had done the re-recording ourselves and there's all this stuff that we were really excited about and then naturally we did one show in Mexico City as kind of our big we're wow. back show and it went really well and then within a couple of days um I got home and uh, I think the first domino to fall was, was the, the kind of the, the trifecta of the MLB, NBA and, 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 uh, and, and uh, NHL Rudy, all the Rudy same Gobert. Kind of day. It was all
0: Rudy Gobert yeah. when he got it. It yeah. was like, that was when we, I remember in the dressing room finding out, you know, we were on tour in Charlotte, North Carolina and finding out that he got it. And, and the NBA was getting shut down and I was like, well, we're going home. Like, I know, I just know it's going to happen. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And I think that that was a sentiment that a lot of us shared, but I think a lot of people didn't necessarily understand the point that was being made. And so I tried to, you know, it's and it's not, this is not to discredit anybody that I work with, but I think people were staying optimistic. And so I started, we were at this point, we were like five days away from leaving for this tour that was going to stretch until I'd still be on tour right now. And this was March 6th. <laughs> so yeah. um, th- there, because we were going to a lot of different countries and it was all like we had maybe uh, three four days off here and there and then a week off and it, but it was it was meant to be a full year-long world tour and so I started making calls and emails saying look I know that we're not um, it's not NBA NHL MLB territory in terms of the volume of people but this is a large number of people entering places to be entertained not dissimilar to these tor- uh, sort sure, of events sure how is it possible that we are going to have immunity to this and this isn't going to affect our industry and I was hearing back from people well look this isn't a big deal. I I heard directly, this is not going to affect the entertainment industry. Um, And my manager and I, and some of the people we work with were going, no, this, this seems to be like it's going to. And I was getting things like uh, Live Nation reps sending us, well, here's the numbers that KISS are doing in Europe right now. And things that were completely inconsequential, but like just to kind of, kind of puff up the situation.
0: Oh, it's straight up denial.
2: Yeah. And so it, it got to the point where I needed to I needed to make a call on whether flights were going to happen or not, oh, and finally I just put enough pressure and said, "Look, everyone's getting on a plane in the next forty-eight hours. Are we calling this or not? Like, what's happening?" And finally, I heard back, "Yeah, we're going to have to." And the other problem was that we were we were doing the first run was a co-headline tour where you know it's not it's not just our call on when we say it, how we say it, and how how the rollout is. So then there was that kind of like gray area period where you know that things are getting rescheduled, but we don't know when and you can't say anything. And then obviously the fans are saying, Hey, what the hell's going on? What are you guys doing? Are you going to say something about this? So, I mean, you know, as well as I do, there's that, there's that kind of period where everything is behind the scenes and you're trying to develop how you're going to say this and, and the way that the rollout's going to happen. And then the other thing is we both know that Promoters and Live Nation and everything else don't want to. They want to hold on to the money from these things, and that ultimately puts the bands often in the position of being vilified by the audience, and understandably so because people don't necessarily understand that we're not holding on to your money. You know what I mean? Like we don't. We don't have your right. money for that ticket because it, it's people say, "Oh, you already got paid. Can you just give it back?" And you go, "I, I would love. We did not already get paid." Uh, you know, and and in that regard, there's also the financial fallout from that, where for a band that was inactive for a number of years. Uh, and then had to go through different sure. situations and ended up in a position where we were not we're, we're not uh, you know in a, as financially viable of a situation as we would have been to be able to bounce back from it without right doing You're counting things on like, the
0: money to pay the yeah bills. we yeah. you
2: know we were buying staging and sure. lighting trusses and all this shit that's it's now sure sitting in a storage shit like space that nobody you know? thinks about yeah. right yeah so then yeah. you then that reality happens and it just it, you know I, I would say that the first couple weeks of this just became a all right. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Because my the way that I, I tend to work with this stuff is I I, I like to stay um, goal oriented, even if there is something that's kind of subverted the the intention. So the conversation became immediately. Well, we've got this ten year anniversary record coming out. What can we do? What's out there? What's available? What what are people doing behind the scenes to try to make shows happen in a way that's safe? And thankfully, we were hit up pretty early on by uh, Veeps, and they had kind of a they had given us this whole kind of um, pitch on how they could do it, that we could do it at the whiskey, which is where, uh, you know, we had played some of our early shows as a band in LA and it would be a very cool event and we can do it with multi cameras and everything else. And now you've seen, um, you know, our friends in the world alive have done it. A lot of bands have done it with this company and it's gone really well. So the, really the, the derivation of this was necessity and wanting to still play these songs and to have a chance to celebrate this. And we've been fortunate that there's been a really positive response to it so far.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really, really great. Yeah. It's, it's crazy just to think, you know, too, when you're planning this stuff early on, you know, no one knows how long this is going to last. In fact, we still don't know how long it's going to last. Right. So you, you plan for all this stuff, but then it's like, okay, on August 2nd, when it's done, what's next? You know, that's, that's the yeah. whole problem right now. It's, it's very hard to figure out. So have you guys gotten in a room together yet? Have you started practicing or anything like that? I, I mean, these songs are probably not super familiar.
2: Well, we prior to starting what was the tour, um, basically the kind of, kind of perpetual recording process had taken place where we, once we were in a position where we had a uh, fellow Canadian, by the way, our, our new, our <laughs> new bass player, Lonnie Eagleton, nice, uh, was nice. in the band and was, was in LA and we were, we were working we started recording the re-record and, and Jake uh, Pitts, the lead guitar player in the band, had produced the re-record and we were doing it at his home studio and using different studios around LA. And we had started, in the course of that, we took some old songs that we had never done anything with and we thought, wouldn't it be fun to release two of these songs that were, the musical parts and stuff were written kind of back in that era and have them be kind of supplementary pieces that sound, you know, because the band has evolved over the years sonically, sure, but sure. songs that sound similar to that era. So we put those two songs out kind of as like a, you know, just for the fans to be like, hey, here's some songs that, you know, for us kind of feel like that era.
0: Was that Saints of the Blood and The Vengeance? Yes. So those were both riffs
2: that existed in the early 2010s and and it bounced around. And then we thought, hey, this would be great since we're in here doing these old songs and we're in this mindset. Let's do some new material, quote unquote, new material that feels like this. And so I wrote. (laughs) Uh, all, you know, all new lyrics and we wrote different, different melodies for it. And we made these songs, cool. but by doing that, we got so excited immediately about the idea of writing new material that while we were finishing the rerecord, we started work on what will now be the sixth full length record. And at least I think it's six. I, I've lost count, but I think it's the sixth <laughs> full length record, sure. um, you know, but so, and so that went that went straight into uh, the writing process. And we were writing songs right up through rehearsals for the the, the the and the tour that didn't happen. And so once this all occurred, the logical thing was to go, well, as soon as we feel like we've been safe enough and are comfortable enough, let's with our masks and gloves, get into yeah. uh, my guitar player's home studio and start writing again. And so we've been doing that, and then we've been going to some friends of ours, uh, different different people around town that that we know and 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 trust, and keeping a safe distance, and writing, and working, and trying to come up with different things. But we've been primarily at at my guitar player's studio nearly every day, writing songs, recording songs, working on demos, and being together, working as a band. So. That is now kind of just immediately rolled into rehearsing these songs together and right. going through these things, and then within the next week, we plan to get into uh, a rehearsal space and start working them out for real. But it's kind of been, you know, we. My wife was saying the other day, we like well, all of us have kind of been given the gift of time in terms of making records, and because she's been working on a record for the last year, that now she's we're like, hey, maybe some things we've got some time to kind of reevaluate and make it even yeah, better. And that's exactly. kind of how we're treating it with the band is. We we have the chance to make like a really great interesting record because no one's breathing down our back saying you gotta get it done for this time, you know.
0: It's true, it's true. There's gonna be some incredible music coming out, I I guarantee you in the next year or so. Restitch these wounds. The re record record comes out on um July thirty first how much of these songs are reimagined, are different? How many of them are true to the originals, just with updated sound and performance? Because that's that must be hard to navigate how much you want to change, because some of it, at this point, some of the stuff's kind of classic, or you're so used to hearing it the same way, it's hard to imagine it differently.
2: Um, you know what's interesting for us is that uh, as early as 2013, we had interest in redoing this record. And the reason for that is... I mean, as early as the time I sat in my car and listened to it when it's done, I had interest in redoing this record. But
0: uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's not the best recorded record I've ever heard for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, and that, and that's, I mean, look, the, the reality is, I was I was seventeen when most of these songs were written. I was eighteen, newly eighteen, when we were recording it. Um, just on a personal level, myself, I I I didn't have the experience or wherewithal vocally to kind of deliver these things the way that I heard them in my head yet. Yeah. And in a lot of cases you know, stuff was being written on the fly because we didn't have enough material or this or that. And I would say that the biggest issue that we had was we were on a very small subsidiary label Um, they didn't, the budget was somewhere around like six grand total for the whole record, which sounded like a lot of money to me when I was 18, but turns out it's not really, it's not enough to really make an album. And, and we were, you know, and, and we, we had a lot of people that were doing favors for us. Uh, you know, uh, engineers that my manager knew who were working on other records who would take, basically they would finish working at real studios. And then in the middle of the night, they'd go to this little like jingle studio that we were able to rent out where they do like commercial jingles in North Hollywood. And it would be like, you know, uh, the hours of eleven to two a.m. or something like that would be our recording time because that's when they could get it in. And so we were just working with a rusty toolbox, so to speak. I mean, there just wasn't the money or resources there to make it sound the way we wanted. Uh, we didn't have the as players, we didn't have the kind of the the skill set that maybe we did even within a few years when we started to have more experience that we did that. So. You know, and there's a lot of weird things that were done. The song "Knives and Pens" on the original record, and not a lot of people know this, but mm-hmm. the the label that we were on at the time became obsessed with the idea that it needed to sound exactly like the original home recording that I had made in a in a friend's house in Northern Kentucky in the basement in in 2007. Oh, weird! Uh, and and the problem with that is that I was what well, you know, I was what 16 at the time. My voice had changed from huh. 16 to 18. And they heard the recording that we did and their suggestion was that they pitch shift my vocals in Pro Tools so it sounded like the one that most people were familiar with, which was the demo that I had made <laughs> with my friends in Kentucky. That's, that's so, insane. <laughs> yes, and so on the record, there's a song where it's the it's the most known song of the album, but the official record version to me is unlistenable because I've got this weird like oh deep goodness. chipmunk voice. And so there was so many of those things that were odd choices or mistakes that were made or things that we were just not, we didn't have the capabilities to kind of steer the ship the way we wanted to, that from the moment that we started recording with real kind of studio situations and real budgets. And by the time we were on a major label and everything else, we thought holy shit, we've got a like, this song, or these, this record needs to sound better. I've always said it's one of those records where if you listen closely, you can hear a toilet flush in the background. Like, it's one <laughs> of those, like, like, if you listen to, like, early Sam Hain <laughs> records or, like, early punk records where you feel like you're definitely certain that this was recorded in, like, Glenn Danzig's mother's basement, like that, that's how <laughs> it sounds to me. And there's a certain, there's a certain charm to that. And I think that fans of the band love that. And so the idea was not to replace this record, but to supplement it with how we had intended the record to sound in the first place, if we were able to go back in time and do it again, this is the way the songs would have sounded. This is the production we would have had. These are the choices that would have been made. Right. And so it's meant to be a companion piece to the original album, not so much something to replace it. So in cool. that way, long story short, or long story even longer, uh, <laughs> the, the t- t- you know I took twenty minutes to answer every question. Um, I love it. You you asked you asked whether there was a lot of changes. The truth is that we made changes where we felt it was necessary and that there are certain songs that are are what I describe as poop uh, and don't and don't have uh, legitimate choruses or melodies that we wanted to fix but still keep the, the feeling of those songs there. There were other songs where the meaning of the song had maybe changed and so we wanted to change it tonally. But I would say that 90% of this record is true to the original. It's just better.
0: So you're playing this entire record on the live stream, right?
2: And we're playing it in the way that, that we have it on, on the, the re-recording. Like the, right, the, and right, also, I mean, that's the other thing is, you know this, when you play old songs, you tend to do things a little bit different live or you, the, the songs right, it, evolve it evolves, live yeah, over the exactly. years.
0: It's going to be funny though for some people that haven't heard it yet because it comes out the day before. So they're going to tune into the live stream and they should, and they're going to hear it and they'll be like, hey, this is different. That's going to be kind of a, a, a unique experience.
2: I think, but also, I mean, if you look at a song like Sweet Blasphemy, which is the first song that came out as yeah. kind of the, the the single, so to speak, that's the way that I've been singing that song live for the better part of the last 10 years. The melody changes and stuff were things that I had done live. So if you've yep. seen us before or are familiar with our, our music from a live perspective, most of these songs, with the exception of the ones that we've never played live, which there are a handful of those, but the ones that are on the record and the ones that you're going to hear are the versions that you have heard live for the better part of the last decade. Right.
0: Cool. So your, your band, you know, you guys came out and you made a pretty big splash, um, at least, you know, to me. Like, I remember just kind of hearing about you guys and you guys were just this huge band all of a sudden, you know. and I'm sure it was
2: all positive. Uh, Everyone's only ever said positive things about the band, <laughs> right?
0: Well, I'm not going to lie to you and say that, but, you know, it was like all of a sudden <laughs> there's there's this, this band occupying this space. Can I put it that way? Sure. <laughs> and, you know you know, you guys are dressed like Motley Crue, or Kiss, or like, you know, you have this this big image, and you're playing this music that's different, and it was always really interesting to me how you guys were in this punk scene, like, you already brought up Glenn Danzig, you know, you were in this Warped Tour scene, even the emo scene, like, all these people were listening to your band, but, influentially, you guys seemed different, your music was different, Um, and I mean, I'm sure that led to some of the negativity in the comments, but... It always fascinated me that you guys were not only that you gravitated to that, but people gravitated to you so heavily, pretty much right out of the gate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know, there's there's a lot to be said about um, a band that is is has always been incredibly divisive in terms of. Um, there, you know, we were once described, I think Karang called us the most hated band in the universe. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we were often described as the Marmite test in the UK, which is, you know, some people love it, some people hate it. Right. Um, and, and that was that was certainly true. But the other part of that is that you have to understand that in those early days, there's kind of two parts that really push that narrative. One is that a lot of, press outlets saw that there was a uh, like kind of a visceral reaction when they would talk about us. And so many of them leaned into that and sold that narrative. The idea that we were so divisive and so people yeah. don't know what to think about us. And then that ultimately perpetuates people's kind of very divisive opinions about something because they're told that this is a thing that you have to make a stance on right. one way or the Take other. Make a fucking sign. Exactly. Yep. And, and in that way, it works to our benefit because the people who believed in the band and loved the band there was an inherent level of like, you know, fuck you, this is my thing. And that was the message from day one. And because I was essentially the same age as many of the people who are getting into the band, there was, there was an inherent uh, kind of genuine nature to the fact that I also was pissed off all the time. I would go to uh, a festival or an award show, and just for being the band that we wanted to be, we would have people throw shit at us or flip us off or freak out because we were there or talk shit or bands that I idolized or bands that I liked or bands that were our peers throwing shots at us in press or in interviews or whatever it was. And so there was a, a boulder on my shoulder everywhere. And that perpetuated the kind of feeling of like this band has this very unique situation where, uh, this audience as there's a fervor for this band from an audience perspective. And then there's also a huge hatred and that still to this day exists in spades here and there. And when the, yeah. when something about the band is posted, you're we're a decade later and you'll still see people lose their mind about how much they hate us. And inversely, people will freak out about how much they appreciate the band. And that is to me, 100% due to the fans. We were never a band that were the darlings of anything. Um, we were not a band that came out and everybody said, yes, this is definitely important and it's going to work. We never had good reviews. We never were, you know, critical darlings. Um, our fans said, no, you're going to pay attention to this band. And they propped us up and put us on magazine covers and put us winning awards and put us on these yeah. festivals and forced these doors down. And I think that that type of connection is so similar to what I grew up as a, as a punk rock fan, going to street dog shows and social distortion and Misfits and Alkaline Trio and yeah, all the yeah. bands that I loved. Uh, those were the things that meant a lot to me. And so I think one of the things that people don't necessarily understand about Black Veil is that we're a band that very genuinely is a mix of a couple different people's interests, right? Like in a very true sense, I wanted, as a kid, I wanted nothing more than to have a horror punk sing-along band. Uh, Jake and Jinx wanted to have a Metallica band, you know, And, and when we met, we said, well, what if we combine all these things? And that became the band. And then it just so happened that at the same time, There was this huge surge of dudes with swoopy bangs and emo and everything else, and we kind of inadvertently found a home with that that crowd and those people And it. And unlike a lot of bands who uh, didn't like that idea or insisted that they weren't a part of it, it felt to us very clear that, that we are a part of this, whether you want to call us an emo band or a metal band or whatever you want to call us the people that are are supporting us and have put us in this position, it's not up to us to tell you what type of fan you should be. If you're the type of kid who is a MySpace scene kid and, you know, types out Raw and everything else and we're your favorite band, that's great. Just like if you're someone who's older and really into Motley Crue and Def Leppard and you love the band, that's great. Or if you're into, you know, Calabrese and The Misfits and Demented Argo and you like our imagery, then that's great too. So that, that we, we, we kind of reached such a, a wide swath when it came to who was interested in the band that we got to a point where you couldn't you couldn't say that we were just going to go away after a certain amount of time it became clear that we had an audience that cared and that was what was
0: going to keep us around. Right. And that's funny when the press starts to get more on board, like the reviews get better and better, not necessarily because the band does, just because they realize, well, Hey, this is This isn't going anywhere. So we better support this. You know, that's always a funny thing. Well, you know, you know, I
2: mean, I, I think about that all the time because when I was a kid and this is not to be, I don't mean to discredit anyone here, but when I was in high school or in like junior high, um, the bands that were to me and my like punk rock, like kind of foe thought I was so punk rock and I only listened to bands that no one had heard of. And, you know, like that was my thing. Bands like Good Charlotte and Simple Plan and these other bands were seen to, to me as posers, right? Like that's, that's poser music. And that's not real. And then by the time I'm an adult, all of those bands that were considered like, you know, uh, not real or disingenuous or posers by like the credibility police. Now, the minute that any of them put out a record, it's immediately credible and accepted. And now it's good because to me, time builds credibility. If you can just stick around, people suddenly decide that you're okay. And it's sort of bizarre in retrospect to look at things that way, because ultimately Blackville became Blackville became that poser band that we became the right. band that people like me when I was in high school would have said that's not legit and it's sort of funny how little you actually know about these artists or what their influences are until you experience it because I'm coming at it from the perspective of a guy who's trying to put alkaline trio melodies into a metal song and people are going you're just an emo band and i go well i don't think you understand but again <laughs> they're not meant to and it it helped me to understand how how off-base and stupid I was at that age to think that any of these artists were less credible or posers or whatever else.
0: That's so funny you bring that up because, you know, Pierre... Pierre from Simple Plan is a good friend of mine, a good friend of the show. You know, he was in a punk band that I saw when I was in high school, you know, and they were nobody knew who they were. You know, they were like a really credible yeah. band, you know, or, you know, Alkaline Trio. Sure. Now the guy's in Blink-182, right? Like, which is yeah. another band that, that people would have called posers because of their popularity. So it is really funny that it came full circle from you, for you, because I guarantee you, you know, you want to talk about the Madden Brothers, too. Those guys were like outcasts and punk punk rockers in their high school, too. and they totally. were And they were getting, you know, they were listening to bands no one else heard of. And then they became, you know, at one point, the, the biggest pop punk band in the world. So, you know, it, it really is interesting how you you yourself became a part of that. But the question I have for you is all this stuff happening, all this negativity and all this, you know, people telling you who you are or who you aren't. And you know the the idea that hey these guys are rock stars and these guys dress like Motley Crue, did that ever actually change who you were internally? Like, did that start to rear its ugly head in some ways? Was it like, well, people are saying we're rock stars. Do we have to act like rock stars? How much of that started to affect the band?
2: The truth of the matter is, and and it kind of I mean this is going to be another three hour long answer, but it, I think it kind of necessitates it to get the the idea I got here. All day, but man. um. All right. Fair enough. You tell Uh, me, you tell me when you
0: want it to be over. I'll I'll talk to you all day.
2: Fair enough. All right. (laughs) That's good. Uh, when, when the band first started, so I started the first kind of iteration of the band when I was about 15 or 16 and that version of everything was entirely like social distortion covers and New York dolls covers and misfits covers and alkaline trio covers and, and trying to write songs in that vein. Ultimately in my later teens, I met some guys who were into like more metal-based stuff. And so I said, okay, well, maybe that's what we'll do. And then that kind of became the mishmash of what the band was. Mm-hmm. All the while, the imagery, and this is, is kind of something that maybe a lot of people don't know, but I'm not a, um, a dedicated know-the-whole-discography Motley Crue fan. Uh, I I I knew the hits. I, I as a kid, my dad was really into that type of music, but he was also really into punk rock. And so, right. what spoke to me was my favorite bands were punk rock bands or psychobilly bands, or you know. Uh, and my, my mom introduced me more to singer songwriter stuff, like Bruce Springsteen. To me, is far more influential than Motley Crue ever was. But the imagery sure. of the early Motley Crue stuff to me felt like it fell right in line with how I imagined I wanted a. Uh, uh, misfits on steroids type look to be. And so in the early days, I was playing with, you know, fake blood and horror makeup and stuff, much more so than the kind of glam-based stuff. By the time I moved to L.A., when I, I just turned 18 and I moved to L.A., and I started to meet people out in L.A., and ultimately, through a number of uh, kind of different iterations of the band, came upon the version of the band that existed. They're kind of this this kind of thing, and you can see it in the photos, it it falls into this kind of like glam look. And over time, the problem that I had with it was that it it started out representing what I thought was this really cool, unique imagery. And then over time, it became this kind of cartoony, like, like 80s glam party, over-sexualized kind of bullshit Right. that was not to me what I wanted to do. And so by the time we hit, 2013 when we did the kind of our concept record, I I really made a concerted effort to strip away a lot of that artifice and to change it to where the iconography became more about costuming and interesting ideas and less about dressing up like Motley Crue Rejects. And in that time period, because I was so young, I'm 19 years old and all of that. And I'm yeah. around some people who are significantly older than me. And I went from being someone who, like my idols, were like Gillette and Dee Snyder and all these guys who never drank. Paul Stanley and Dee Snyder on the
0: podcast I, last week, actually.
2: He's he's amazing. He's, he's one of the best. He's the best. Yes, but so these guys were my idols, and I wasn't interested in. I never grew up thinking I was going to be a big party monster. But ultimately, what happened is I have really bad anxiety and depression and other things, and I've fought with that my whole life. And what I found was. I was around all these people partying. I was around all these people having a good time. And it started very innocently and fun. I'd be around these bigger bands that we were kind of new to the scene and they'd all be drinking or doing drugs or whatever else. And I, oh, maybe I'll try that. And the first time I got drunk, I was like, holy shit. I don't have to think about all the crazy shit that I think about all the time. Like I can silence all of those anxieties and nerves and fears. And that became kind of this like snowball that got bigger and bigger. And then it became, well, you go to the UK and suddenly we're super famous in the UK, but we're famous for being the new Motley Crue or the new rock gods. And so, well, I better show up to these interviews with a bottle in my hand because that's kind of the thing. And because I'm 19 years old, I didn't really have the wherewithal to figure out and go, you know what, this is not me. And so I started getting involved in situations where I'm drinking until I black out every day. I'm 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 trying different drugs. I'm doing things that are against kind of my own moral compass. And it led to this kind of, this point in my life where by the time I was in my mid-20s, I, I got sober and just said, that's not for me because it, it really... The imagery, the iconography, the emotions, all of that kind of bundled into this thing that no longer represented what I felt was my intention as a lonely kid from Ohio who just wanted to make music that spoke to other people and like Mike from The Street Dogs put the microphone in people's face and sing along with them. It became about dressing up in the most outlandish costumes and making your hair as big as possible and not because it was a cool image, but because it became this self-perpetuating kind of weird prophecy. So the the answer to your question is yes, there was a point where the imagery became, I think, too far and not enough about, because the idea was the black paint and all the stuff was to represent that we were kind of the ultimate outcast. We would personify the feelings that we felt internally to show that when we showed up somewhere, people were just as mad that we were there as we kind of felt that we were in the first place. So, and that, that ethic and that kind of uh, the moral code behind that got more and more blurred as it became more about let me get drunk and yell at everybody who's flipping us off or let's get you know let's get crazy and and do all this other stuff and to me I'm just a, I'm a very sensitive person and I I was losing who I was to pretend that I was somebody else yeah. and it and it the most important thing that I've ever had in my life was when I met my wife when we got married we both got sober together my and and the change that I've had in my life in the last you know half a decade has been about Kind of getting back to who I was as a kid and getting back into those initial initial interests, whether it's comic books or sports or all those types of things that when i was when I was in this period of my life where I was only a cartoon character didn't matter to me as much. Right. And so that's another part about doing this record again is it's getting a chance to re-examine these things from the perspective of me at eighteen and seventeen eighteen before I fell into the traps of like rock stardom and getting to do it again and kind of literally now getting a chance at twenty nine to start my hopefully start my career kind of over again in a way.
0: Well, wow, that's a great, great response, you know, and I guess my next question for you is just in in the line of, you know, you talk about in the mid your mid-20s, you go sober and for all these reasons, and that coincides with the start of your solo career, you know, and really going back to your roots a little bit in some of, the, you know, musically and, and what you did, but it also, there was a fear, I'm sure, to your fans and some speculation that Black Veil Brides wasn't going to make it. They were going to break up on account of this. And I know you said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Blackville Brides isn't going anywhere. But was that even true? Because, you know, I understand, like, you're not putting yourself in that environment again, whether it's in the UK, where you have this reputation or anywhere else, where it's like all of a sudden I'm sober. That's a hard environment for you, especially if you're dealing with addiction.
2: Well, you know, I think that, there's there's a lot of I, sometimes people look at these situations and they go what what's the truth or what was really happening and I think it's more nuanced than that and of course we live in a world where there's no nuance anymore so it's hard to <laughs> kind of describe situations like that but the truth of the matter is that it, it was both true for me that the band wasn't over as well as it was true for me that I thought the band might be over do you know what I mean there were days where yeah. I felt like I could probably salvage this and then there were days where I thought fuck this it's over and I would say that when I first started. You know, the, the important part to note about all this is that there was an unhappiness within the band and there was elements that were going on that felt like we couldn't get past it. And so to me, the only logical thing I could do was to, I didn't want to stop making music and I had this kind of new lease on life. So I should just do other stuff until we can figure out how to fix this situation within the band. And so that's what I did. Ultimately, I really enjoyed making the first solo record to the point where it was this catharsis, cathartic experience for me. And had a lot of friends come in and play on the record and work on the record. John and I, Feldy and I had a blast just making this thing kind of out of nothing. You know, John and I have been friends for years. So it was just, it was a, it was a, almost like a religious experience to like, Hey, I can make music that that is just fun and exciting and different. And there's no expectations for what this is going to sound like. And then I went on that tour and instead of yelling at people, I told stories and jokes and did about seven songs and the rest of it was like just telling stories and talking about my life and where I was at. And it was just a very different experience. I'm playing in smaller venues. I'm playing yeah. to, to to crowds that are it was like going back in time in a way, you know what I mean? So all of that was was great. Ultimately what happened was we had a you know, there's a responsibility when you're your band is at a certain level and you have contractual obligations. You have a responsibility to keep making material. So we made a blackville Brides record that was in many ways, um, what I, through the process of making the record, it felt like it was the, the final record. Um, I wrote a, many songs on that record that were describing a, the situations that were going on and trying to kind of get the message out to the fans of what was going on without, you know what I mean? Without like being like, Hey, everything's terrible, but trying to explain like, here's what, how I feel and where we're at right. in a way that, could also play into the storylines that we had written in previous songs and wrap up that story because we had a concept record that came out a number of years before. So I thought, well, this is a chance to finish that story and kind of finish our story unless these elements can be changed. And by the time that record was done, we went on that tour and I was touring in a separate bus from the band. I'd really only see the band uh, for the shows and for the meet and greets. And then I'd be back in my bus, just uh, basically on my own, watching the office in the back (laughs) lounge of my bus, you know, doing, doing nothing because I, and it wasn't as if everyone was going crazy and I couldn't be around it. it. It was just that there, there's elements that were there that I couldn't, I couldn't handle anymore. And I needed to fix that before we could move forward. And ultimately we've been able to do that. And there's been a rekindled love for the band. And I've discovered so much of my love for the band again, through, uh, who we talked about earlier Lonnie was the new bass player in the band. I had hired him just as a hired gun musician for my solo project for the second solo record that I did for the tour. And I immediately just fell in love with this kid. And I thought, man, he's so great. Like, I, I love him as a person. His, he's such a great player. This is awesome. And over time, it kind of came out that he was also a big fan of Black Veil. And I kind of was interested in that because this is a person who's around the same age as me who was heavily influenced by my band. And I wanted to kind of know, like you pick someone's brain. I wanted to know like, what is it about the band that you liked? like? Like, right. what, what are the things that I can't see that you liked? like? Like, what, what, what made you interested? And I would, I mean, it, it would be like almost a daily thing where I would just sit and talk to them because I was interested to know from a fellow musician and someone who's made a career for himself in the industry why BVB was so important to him. And he would kind of talk to me about it. And finally, it just became clear that this is what we needed within the band to reinvigorate and and find why we did this again and to get us to the point where we could be making records that connect with our audience and also are fulfilling to us. And so he became the logical like choice to come into the band. And it's just reinvigorated everything, because when you have someone that's in the band that knows why the band is good it's like a representative of the audience. You know what I mean? And in that way, you don't ever go, you don't stray too far from the path of what makes the band good. You can still have fun and you can evolve, but you know that there's someone there who has the perspective that we could never have. You know, I've always said that people like Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley can never can never love Kiss the way that a Kiss fan does because they sure. don't really get it. Just like, I can't love Black Veil the way that Lonnie does because I was making the thing and putting it out. So it, that was a huge element towards like getting back to where I wanted to be. And then I, I believe that I'll still make solo music in the future. I really enjoyed it. I did two records, both of which were a lot of fun, but right now my interest in Black is so much more than it's ever been. Really. It's better than it's ever been. We have a, we have a better personal relationship than we've ever had. Jake and I used to live together and we were not this close of friends, you know, and it's, It's just, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of that and to feel like if I can continue to make solo music if I want to in the future, but it's not like, oh, I have to do this to escape the sadness of the band.
0: Well, you know, one thing that's really struck me as you as a personality is there's always been, you're, you're not just a singer in a band. You're not just a a musical artist. You know, you've been, you've gotten into acting a little bit and you showed you had some skills there. You know, you've done some podcast work and stuff on that side of the microphone, if you will with the music industry really in an uncertain place, is that something that you're going to put more focus on potentially?
2: Well, you know, it's, 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 for me, it's kind of always been part of the whole thing. I, I used to joke that I, I would do anything one time and see if I was any good at it, you know, like, and, and if anybody can give me an opportunity, I'll I'll, I'll apply myself and try it. You know, I, I just started doing voiceover work that I'm really excited about an animated series that'll be coming out soon. Um, you know, I, I I there's there's a lot of like new things that this whole situation has presented different opportunities to try to stretch kind of what I can do. Um, but yeah, I mean acting for me was it was kind of this weird accidental thing where um when I was a kid there was an art school in Cincinnati that I really wished that I could have attended, but we lived outside the city limits and it cost tuition to go there. And so I was very fortunate that my aunt came to us and, and said to my parents, look, I'll I'll help. With half the tuition, if he if he wants to audition and go to this school, and I did, and I got in, and oh. it really changed my life in a sense because um, I was able to discover different things that I enjoyed. Uh, I joined as a, in the vocal music department initially, and then I was kicked out of the vocal music department because they said I couldn't sing. I made sure when <laughs> I visit the school, I'm now I'm now seen as a notable alum. So when I revisit the Hilarious. school, I go to those people who kicked me out of this, and I go, "Hey, guess what I do for a living?" But uh, so anyway, I. I uh, so I, what I did find was there was a man, David Roth, who I'm still, you know, close with uh, in the sense that that he's a part of my life, and I invite him to shows when I come out. And he, but he was one of the most influential people in my life in the sense that here's this kid that comes to this school with thick eyeliner and long curly hair and 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 just totally not the lead in musicals or shows or plays, type of person. And he saw something in me one day, and he came to me and said, "Hey, have you ever acted?" And my instinct was always just to say yes and then figure it out. So I said, oh, yeah, of course. And he goes, well, I would like you to audition. Uh, and I, I'm trying to cast the lead in this show. And the show was Harvey, which is the the Elwood P. Dowd sees a uh, a rabbit kind of Jimmy Stewart famously right. did the role in a movie. right? Um, but they were doing Harvey at the school. And these productions at the school were pretty big because the performing arts school was seen in the city as like – a place that if you wanted to see a play, you go see the, these plays from these because the, the well-trained actors and everything. Yeah. And so um, I, I, I didn't have a monologue, and I didn't even know what a monologue was. So I recited the lyrics to the Misfits song "Dig Up Her Bones" dramatically uh, as my monologue because I didn't, I didn't know how to do a monologue. And somehow, I guess I did it well <laughs> enough that I got cast in that. And I cut my hair, and I, I got, you know, I got in in better shape because I was, I was kind of a chubbier kid growing up. And I, I was like, Hey, this is going to be a thing that I can do. And I became the leading man in the show. And then that went into other plays. And then that created opportunities for me to try to do like commercial work. And I landed some commercials and it became this whole other thing for me that when I was a teenager and I was too young for people to really take me seriously in a band, even though I was trying, I'd be playing clubs and trying stuff. But at 14, 15, it's very hard to like, be a serious singer in a band and have people care. Right. So this was a thing that kind of supplemented my need to perform. And ultimately when the band took off, I kind of put it away, but I've had a chance more recently to, you know, I was in a film a couple of years ago. I, I, we just wrapped a television series. that will be coming out soon. Like I've had more opportunities and that's just been a lot of fun.
0: You know, that's cool. Is that where the spoken word idea came from? When you did the you know, I know it's on Spotify, it's like one of your albums that's just all done with you just speaking the Because that's <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, that's I, the same, that's what you did when you were in high school. That's so funny.
2: I had a weird thing for that my whole life where I like to to read lyrics in a dramatic way. I my you know, my wife has to put up with that all the time where I'll come home from the studio and I'm like, Here's the song I wrote today, but instead of singing it, I read the lyrics very dramatically. <laughs> uh
0: I love I it. I don't know. I, love, I don't know. I love it. I I, I saw it and uh, I hadn't noticed it today, like at all until today when I was just checking it out real quick. And I was like, what is this? I was like, that is such a cool idea. Like for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, I know you have a great speaking voice. Like, you know, I'm not surprised you're doing voiceover work. Um, so that's cool. But also, Thank just, you. but also just like, hey, there's, there's some extra Spotify plays. Like, like, why not? Right. There's some streams. <laughs> so that's uh, that's cool, too.
2: We just like to try to do stuff that, that is different when we can. And in that situation, that was, I think, 2014 when we did that or, or somewhere around there. And there's no one who had done anything like that. So we figured, why not? That was kind of in the early boom of podcasts. Yeah. And we thought, well, this will be a companion piece to people sit and listen to the people talking. Might as well try this out. And, you know, it, people like it. So, and, and that's something that, you know, it's kind of the ethic that we've always had because we're a band that, you know, we've more often than not, the things you see from us, we made you know, we were on a major label, but they didn't, basically, we were like, we were getting paid to leave them alone. You know what I mean? Like there was no, there was no kind of oversight when it came to like what we were doing. We made a film on our own. We, you know, we, we've done most of our music videos on our own and I've worked on directing them with my, my friend Pat Fogarty, who's directed nearly all of our videos, the artwork, you know, we did the Bruce Springsteen cover a number of weeks ago. I made the artwork, all of the things that we've done in our career, are things that we just did on our own. I think a lot of that comes from that kind of growing up with the DIY punk rock idea that it, yeah. if you're not willing to do it yourself, no one else will be. And so sometimes I see a lot of these bands that are our peers who have very glossy presentations on everything. And I do get a little envious because I've just always put it to myself that if we want something made, I'll just do it or the band will do it. And But I will say that there is pride and ownership in that way.
0: Well, you're going to care about it more than anyone else will, right? It's on, You're the one that has to live with it. So it makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Well, dude, uh, dude, thank you so much for this. What else to tell the people before I let you go?
2: I'm, you know, I, honestly, I'm just really excited to see this live show go down and, and to see how it, how it goes. We're starting rehearsals this week, and so it's just exciting to get back on stage. So I hope people check that out. Yeah. Um, obviously, the record comes out on July 31st. Um, and then we're going to be working on a new records. We should have, hopefully have, a, uh, some songs out by the fall of the new records. So there's, if you're interested in all in, and what I do and what the band does, there'll be a lot of stuff coming up. So, uh, that's all I can really say is that I just appreciate that anyone still gives a shit about what we do and, and hope that, that continues moving forward.
0: Well, great. Well, on a personal note, I hope that you're, you know, hanging in there. Okay. You know, hunkering down and, and, you know, you know, staying, staying okay, you know, on a, you know, just, just within yourself, you know, I hope you are. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i I've done
2: really weird things like I I repainted my closet, right? Uh, <laughs> just weird
0: weird yeah. moves, uh, yep. but you know you know how it is. You're yep. just trying to figure out what to do. Exactly. No, I love that. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, I'll play the new version of uh, Sweet blasphemy for the people. Please do.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate it, man.
0: There is the new version of Sweet Blasphemy from Black Veil Bride's new re-record of their first album. I'm a big fan of this concept. In my band Silverstein, we've done it, well, we've done it once and we're going to do it again. And it's really, really cool to go back and revisit some tunes You know, look back at what you can update, whether it's just sonic stuff, whether it's better performances, or whether it's actually reworking some parts. Regardless, not that many bands do it. And I personally think, you know, with technology these days, I would love to hear some of my records done in a new, cool way, or just with better production, or better performances. Because let's face it. These days, it's much, much easier to get great sounds. And a lot of the records that I love, old punk records, old metal records, they just didn't have the budgets back then to record them super, super well. So I really applaud Black Veil Brides for doing that. Check that out. Obviously, we did this a few weeks back, so you missed the live stream, but I'm sure they've got lots more stuff on the go. So check out everything that Andy and the boys are doing. Next week, we will be back with another great episode, so many awesome guests coming up, I am super excited, and you should be too, make sure you hit the subscribe button, because you don't want to miss a thing, Aerosmith style, (laughs) and make sure you're checking out the new thing, this is the new shit, where we break down all the new releases that you need to know about, I don't usually do this, but for some reason talking to Andy just got me in the mood, to play some misfits so let's play some misfits we're going old school punk rock the band that paved the way for all the bands in this horror punk genre here it is last Caress" by the misfits let's go see y'all next week